Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is The Jim Rutt Show, and I'm Jim Rutt, your host. Today's guest is Simon Dedeo. Simon is assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences. He directs the Laboratory for Social Minds. He is also external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Simon, could you give us a brief overview of the department and your lab? All right, well, thanks, Jim. Social and Decision Sciences is a department here at CMU where we mix together the economic and the psychological. So we're interested in how people buy and sell, obviously. We're interested in how businesses work, how markets work. But we're also interested in how the mind works, and in particular, how the unusual workings of the mind intersect with the markets in ways you might not expect. We tend to think of ourselves, at least when we operate economically, as rational people. Money's on the line, and so we should behave well. We mostly don't behave well, particularly when we're confronted with situations that are somewhat counter to the things that our culture evolved to handle. So out of this comes behavioral economics, out of this comes thinking fast and slow, behavioral heuristics. And uh, we're interested in the ways that those things go right. In fact, a lot of the uh, snap decisions we make actually are pretty good. And we're also interested in the way those things go wrong. I come out of the Santa Fe Institute and when I was a postdoc there, I wanted to study the ways in which the way we think scales up to the way our cultures work. And at the time, we did not have access to a psychological lab. We couldn't do tests. Mechanical Turk was pretty young. And so I ended up turning to large-scale archives, so things sticking around in places that historians tend to look, as opposed to psychologists. From there, we ended up working mostly in text because we don't usually keep very structured records of stuff that happened in the past. We tend to write down things that people say. So the lab today, we work on a range of projects. Some of these are contemporary, so we look at online behavior. We have a big project now on the men's seduction movement with Chloe Perry. We have a project on the evolution of mathematical theorems. So in fact, now mathematicians are able to prove theorems essentially by writing a computer program so we can look at the syntax trees. And out of that, we understand something more about the proof that the square root of two is irrational. And we work with some really big and deep data sets. So a big paper that we had last year was on the French Revolution. People kept records and transcripts of the debates that were held in that parliament. We've looked at the long time scale evolution of the criminal court system. The bureaucracy of the court is much younger than the need to actually solve our problems, to punish people who do wrong, and to redress things in a way that keeps society going. And so in fact, most of the way we did justice, certainly before, let's say, the 20th century, was by talking it through. So in each of these cases, we're looking not at a spreadsheet so much as a set of manuscripts. And those manuscripts can get very, very big. So in the case of online behavior, we're running a model right now that has 100 million bulletin board posts and close to half a billion words. French Revolution, that long ago, 40,000 speeches, hundreds of thousands of words. and so you might say we do data science, but a lot of what we do actually is much more focused on the cognition of that process. So the way people think and how the way people think scales up into the way a culture thinks. Extremely interesting. I'm, uh, in my professional life, back before I got involved in science, most of my projects were involved in text also. Mm. We were always in a 
say back in the 80s, in a small corner of technology, people dealing with text, right? Mm -hmm. you know, I wrote a couple of full text uh, search engines mm -hmm. back in the day. I, I wrote an automated spell checker in the early days, really crude automatic tagging systems by topic, et cetera. And only in the last 15 years has text processing really come into its own. Yeah, I think 2010, maybe, we had algorithms that came out in the early 2000s, so famously something called topic modeling. And just the ability to use a computer to process a large archive when it's sitting on your desk really changed things. You can interact directly with some of the, the objects that come out of those algorithms. It's funny, in the end, when we want to get something done, we usually come and talk it over, right? There's a reason there's the financial district, and it's not just the light speed travel time of a, of a market trade. We think of ourselves as computers, but I think we're more talkers than calculators. I think that's right. We're not very good calculators because we know a $1.95 calculator can beat our ass, right? Exactly. But so far, nobody has been able to automate discourse in a way you know, good enough to fool another person. I think a uh, machine has trouble making a restaurant reservation. Yeah. And the other one, not quite linguistic, but it's kind of procedural, is the uh, Wozniak test for artificial general intelligence. Steve Wozniak, the Apple guy, uh, proposed one, which I like, uh, which is to be able to take your robot, plunk it down in any random kitchen in America, and have it relatively seamless figure out how to make and actually make a cup of coffee. <laughs> That's something most humans could do without any great distress, right? The, it's the kind of you know, multivariant pruning rule kind of problem that, you know, if a robot could do that, we'd say, hmm, pretty damn smart. Uh, quick question on the text processing. Do you work with the linguistics technology people? And Carnegie Mellon has probably the best or arguably the best or number two department. <laughs> I would say the best, Jim. So LTI, Language Technology Institute, is a fantastic place. And you might say they build the jets and we fly them. So we're much less interested in the high-tech side. A lot of our algorithms that we use are maybe even 10 or 15 years old. That's something you want, right? So if you run a chunk of Russian from 1890 through a machine, you want to have a pretty good understanding of how that algorithm works. So when I watch what comes out of those places, super exciting. And at the same time, untested. So if something comes you know, straight off the assembly line at the Skunk Works, right, you're not going to take that into battle just yet. So we work with a B-52 much more often. That makes a lot of sense. Of course, that is the problem with a lot of state-of-the-art machine learning is that so much of it is now neural nets, right? And hence a black box and doesn't have the visibility of the old-fashioned AI and linguistic processing, which frankly, at the end of the day, was a bazillion if-then-else rules, right? Mm -hmm. We no longer have the ability to even look at the code and say what it's going to do. I mean, this is, this is a big problem. It's a problem for science, right? So. For example, if you run Russian through one of these algorithms, Russian's a highly inflected language. And we don't really know what its representation is internally when it's spitting out the other side instead of semantic claims. It's a problem for science, it's also a problem for policy, right? So machine learning is incredibly powerful. It can help us make better decisions. But in the end, we wanna be able to ask the people who govern us the why questions. Like, why didn't I get a mortgage? What's your problem? Uh, why did you pull me over? And a machine learning algorithm, it, it can't give us a straight answer. Or at least not a neural net machine learning algorithm. Yeah. You know, I, would, I always want to keep this clear. At the moment, the field is highly concentrated on neural nets. Mm -hmm. Personally, I believe it's over-concentrated in the same way that uh, particle physics was over-concentrated on string theory 10 <laughs> years ago. 
And I'm already starting to see in my conversations with AI people that there is a you know, renewed interest in things outside of deep learning, deep neural net, uh, neural net reinforcement learning paradigms. But a lot of people, when they say machine learning now, are automatically linking it one to one with black box neural net type systems. Yeah, so, you know, Gary Marcus is a great proponent of what we, I guess we still call a good old fashioned AI, right? Symbolic representations. We'll probably get to this in our conversation, Jim, right? But this is perhaps the difference between biological evolution and cultural evolution. We're really good, or we're getting better now at building machines that can do things that we evolved to do hundreds or maybe millions of years ago, recognize objects, avoid obstacles. We're not so good at the kinds of things that we think are hallmarks of our species. We're not so good at programming a machine to reflect upon itself, for example. We're not so good at programming a machine to communicate to another machine, for example, in a way that uh, doesn't require a set of protocols and a really precise specification of the inputs and the outputs. I like that. that if I heard you right, if so, it's the first time I've heard this suggestion that uh, perhaps neural AI is analogous to biological evolution and symbolic AI might be analogous to cultural evolution. Did I get that right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty hard to learn to drive a car. It's something we learn maybe, you know, in our teens or in our 20s. There are things that children do well before they can drive a car very well that a machine still can't. Yeah, the famous one, riding a bicycle. That's an interesting one, right? It's, uh, it's a set of feedback mechanisms much stronger than the mechanisms you'll find in a design system like a car. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I've also been involved with some symbolic AI of late ah. uh, for the last several years. Uh, I've been affiliated to a greater or lesser degree with the OpenCog project, hmm. uh, Ben Gertzel okay. and his crew. And uh, they've been working for many, many years on a uh, symbolic form of AI, but it's open and that can also include neural net as inputs. And then essentially the symbolic components can orchestrate non-symbolic components. Some sense is what we're trained to do when we grow up, right? We have instincts, we have things that work very well in a world that is no longer around. And we go to school and they teach us a couple symbolic representations that help us get through. Exactly. In fact, uh, the model I've been using, think about how this intersects your cultural versus biological, is that the uh, neural net components are approximately congruent with perception, mm -hmm. right? And that symbolic components are more or less analogous to Kenneman's system two type thinking, right? And then the system one type thinking is something in between, which is a little bit less clear to me. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot about system one from deep learning. I think that's, I think that's right. One of the things that's quite amazing is when you pipe an image or a video through one of these neural networks, the kinds of things it does on the way to producing an output is very similar to the kinds of things that happen in the visual system, in the layers that take a retinal image and pump it all the way up into an interpretable one. And I'm very happy to see just the last year and a half, more and more people expanding their perception of what machine learning can be and starting to put a little bit more emphasis on some of the non-neural net components. At the end of the day, my hypothesis is it'll be both as always, right? What's the answer in social science? Both, right? Both and everything. Almost, right? yeah, nurture nature, right? right? People get so tied up in nurture versus nature. So you idiots, the answer is obviously both. 
We wouldn't have the concepts, Jim, if they weren't causally relevant. That's probably correct. All right, that's a wonderful introduction. Simon's a very interesting guy, as you can as you can tell, right? This is the next topic we're going to go on to, something that I think I'm going to make a feature of uh, this show, at least for the guests that have a relevant background. And in addition to his very interesting work in data and society and cognition, way back yonder, Simon was an astrophysicist, right? Guilty, right? <laughs> And so uh, I'm going to have him talk a little bit about the Fermi paradox. For those of you who don't know about the Fermi paradox, the name Fermi for it goes back to Los Alamos, where they were making the nuclear weapon, first bomb during World War II, and a bunch of really smart, famous guys were sitting around the lunch table speculating on how many intelligent species there were in the universe. And uh, Fermi, what the hell was his first name? Enrico. Enrico. Enrico Fermi comes up to him and says, okay, where are they, right? <laughs> and ever since, uh, this perspective has been called the Fermi paradox, which is under some reasonable sets of assumptions, you would assume there are many, many intelligent species, probably more intelligent than humans, because they could have been around a lot longer, out in the universe, and yet, despite our looking for you know, the last 60, 70 years, with growing levels of sophistication, we have seen absolutely no sign of them. And uh, there's a long list of thoughts and that kind of fall basically into two big categories. One is they're not out there for some reason that's not obvious, or maybe is obvious if you think about it. And then on the other side is they're out there, but they're not showing themselves or they exist in a way that's not easy for us to detect. And I've been fascinated with this question even before I knew the name of it, uh, since I was probably 12 years old. I read everything I can on the topic and try to keep up on it. And uh, I thought Simon would be a great guy to give his thoughts on the Fermi paradox. Where are the aliens or aren't there any? I think you set me up pretty well here, Jim, right? Because there are two large schools of thought. For those who think there's no one out there, Anders Sandberg has a really terrific paper where he takes essentially our best astrophysical knowledge sticks it through a Bayesian machine, and he, out the other side, claims there's a 15% chance, given our best knowledge, that there is nobody out there, at least not in our galaxy. Anders takes the Drake equation and just tries to factor in our uncertainties, and our uncertainties are extremely large. They're not a bell curve distribution, right? It's not that we know these facts plus or minus one. We probably know them plus or minus a factor of 10. So that really changes. Once you understand how weak our knowledge is of, let's say, even something like planet formation, you can get a lot more skeptical about the idea that they should be out there. I think they are out there, Jim, and I think they're actually here in a funny sense. We know that if you stick an organism in an environment and have it evolve, we're pretty confident that it's going to look reasonably similar to the stuff we have around here. The visual system, let's say, of a bird is, at least in its mathematical properties, very similar to the visual system in a human being. And as we were just talking about, very similar to the visual system in a self-driving car. So uh, at that level, I think that they're around, uh, or if they were around, we would be able to spot them pretty clearly. But once you go to the symbolic level, once you ask, who are we as thinking species, uh, you can't build a faster-than-light drive with a deep neural network. I think you and I would probably agree on that. Once you evolve the symbolic representations that you need to get things done, all bets are off. When a machine or a human being or any kind of creature can reflect upon itself, what comes out the other side is completely unpredictable. The minds that we would encounter 
would be, to my mind, things that we would have a great deal of trouble recognizing. So I think we would have a great deal of difficulty recognizing the very things that we're looking for. If we could go to a planet with life on it, I think we'd spot it pretty quickly. We'd have an out of equilibrium system. There would be something like oxygen. There'd be a set of batteries probably coming out of their nearest star. But if we look for the symbolic products, which is what we do when we, we turn on a radio telescope, when we run something like the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, we look for radio signals. We're looking for signals that would be created by something similar to a human mind. If the monkeys, as David Brin would describe, if the monkeys got uplifted, if the dolphins got uplifted, we would probably, you know, rough guess, we'd probably be able to spot it. But I think if we saw a communication from a living organism that had evolved beyond our planet, I think it would probably drive us mad. And my guess is, is we're running some pretty good filters to keep us outside the realm of being able to see them. Psychologists wonder a little bit about this, right? Why do we have such a theme of alien abductions? You go back further and further and you look, I mean, these are essentially religious experiences that people have. Those experiences tend to drive people a little bit round the bend. So, like I say, I wouldn't be surprised. When I was at Arecibo, we had Serendip, the search for extraterrestrial developed industrial populations, right? So this is a very ambitious project. My guess is we're getting a lot of signals from the guys out there. And we just don't quite know what to look for. Interesting. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that there aren't uh, mathematical techniques to be able to distinguish noise from signal, uh, <laughs> irrespective of how it's encoded. So this is a great one. Actually, Chris Moore at the Santa Fe Institute, this was a paper I think he wrote when he was quite young. The most efficient encoding, the best way to get data from one place to the other, given a particular transmission power, is also the maximum entropy distribution. And what that means essentially is that if somebody's really good at communicating, it's going to look like a warm light bulb. There's a lot of inefficiencies in the way in which we transmit information right now. If we're really good at it, if we're able to compress what we want to say efficiently, out the other side, it's actually going to look purely random. Hmm, interesting. Just thinking out loud here, suppose a society is a billion years old and has essentially codified huge amounts of structures of thought. Mm -hmm. Right. And so essentially communication is really sending codes to a lookup table mm -hmm. in this vast tree structure of thought and knowledge. And codes do look exactly like noise that they're well designed. Exactly. I mean, if there's uh, any pattern in the communication, you should be able to use the pattern to make the communication shorter. If you have a repetition, you don't repeat. You just make a notation. Yeah, particularly if one. the society has been old. So I mean, think about if we were able to codify everything we knew over a billion years and everyone in the galaxy shared this semantic net, right? Probably not too much that hadn't been explored in a billion years other than the recombinations of the things in the trades. This is a great point, right? So one of the things that comes up when people talk about the Fermi paradox is the incredibly short time scale of cultural evolution compared to biological evolution. It took us a long time to get from the sponges, well, this is something uh, David Krakauer talks about, right? We spent a long time as sponges before we really got our multicellular act together. But we went from you know a lifespan of 30 years, no written language, no cities, no culture, up to where we are today, mastery of quantum mechanics, mastery of the electron. And not even the blink of an eye, it's a timescale on which biological evolution has almost no handle, maybe lactose digestion, right? 
So the Fermi paradox says, well, look, you know, if you pick a civilization at random, it's really unlikely that they're going to be in this very early childbirth phase. So, you know, chances are they are millions of years old. We have trouble predicting the next 10 years. So I think on the one hand, people say they're so old that they're, you know, flying around the galaxy in warp drives. That may be true, but the thing that's just as old is not their technology, but also their culture and their minds. And we have a lot of thermal sources sitting out there in the galaxy. We have a lot of things that look like warm stuff. And maybe some of those are broadcasting. Interesting. You know, as a typical 12-year-old nerd, I, of course, assume they had to be out there, right? And all along, I've always assumed they had to be out there until I started seriously researching the Fermi paradox and the arguments on both sides. Here's a couple that make me go, hmm. This is a, actually, uh, I kind of refined this idea in about a four-hour conversation with Stuart Kaufman one time, <laughs> uh, which is, you're obviously familiar with the error catastrophes in evolution when error rates are too high for our audience. In an evolutionary system, you uh, copy things into the next generation and you copy them with a higher or lower level of fidelity. Our current DNA system is very good. It's only a few errors per billion. Until you get to that rate, uh, something close to that rate, evolution doesn't work very fast. You can't evolve a very complex structure with a high error rate. It's called the error catastrophe. I don't remember the exact threshold level where you have to get to before uh, evolution can take off, but it's pretty high. And so this conversation with Kaufman was, all right, Stuart, I buy autocatalytic networks, right? Uh, which is Stuart's theory on sort of the pre-evolution of life, that uh, network can replicate themselves and become a standing chemical wave, essentially. But I said, how do you go from low fidelity copying to this massive machinery we have in our DNA to have high fidelity copying, which then allowed evolution to really ratchet itself relatively rapidly. As far as we know, all the life that we know about today, all the way back to Archaea, you know, the most primitive bacteria, they all use the high fidelity copying DNA system. How did we jump from autocatalytic chemistry, you know, chemistry in a warm pond, to this very complicated machinery? And maybe it's exceedingly rare. <laughs> There is, uh, you know, filters we talk about, right? There are big lucky accidents. In the modern era, some of our big lucky accidents are, of course, cultural. The Cuban Missile Crisis ended as a, with a whimper, not a bang. I think of evolution, right, as a conversation among a bunch of organisms, right? We're all sitting around a table, we're talking, some of the ideas are better than others. And maybe one way to think of the error catastrophe is, how do you keep that conversation sufficiently on track? And if you keep it too much on track, if, if the ideas aren't coming, if people are simply rehearsing and repeating what's come before, nothing happens. But if that group starts moving too quickly, it becomes chaotic. You leave the room at the end of the day and you've gotten nothing done. And so there is a balance. There's a balance between change and comprehensibility. There's a balance between making sure your body plan looks roughly like my body plan, right? The old joke is, you know, if a cow gives birth to a calf and you've never seen a calf that looks like that before, uh, it's not going well for that calf, right? So uh, we need some stability, but we also need evolvability. We need the chance for things to change. And that change is always stressful. Most mutations are horrific events for us. But once in a while, someone takes a hit for the good of the species, uh, so to speak. And out the other side, we get something new. 
Great. Well, I think that's it for Fermi Paradox. Uh, we're not going to solve it today, but very interesting topic. But let's uh, pick up this idea of uh, noise versus coherence, mm -hmm. right? And let's talk a little bit about social media, right? And I know you've done some work on block lists. If you could tell us what block lists are and how they relate to social media and maybe some speculation about their goods and or they're not so good. Right. So, you know, we're a 99% speculation lab, right? And then maybe once every 100 days, we actually get something done. Social media, just on the biggest scale, right, Jim, is evolution sped up by factors of hundreds, tens of thousands. And that's happened very, very quickly. You know, Wired Magazine, I was a junkie for this stuff in the 90s. Wired Magazine, it puts out an idea, right? You know, William Gibson writes an article and you read it and it blows your mind and you do something with it. But in order to get the feedback into that system, if I want to take Gibson's idea and do something with it, let's say I write a letter back to Wired, okay, then, you know, the magazine comes out, I go to the store, I buy it, I write the letter, I mail it in, Wired decides to pick it up, they write something. So, it, you know, it takes about a month, let's say. It takes about, you know, that's time scale of publication. We're now down to timescales a minute, right? You know, if William Gibson's on Twitter and he says something, I can hit right back as soon as I see it, 53 seconds after he's written it. And so if you look at what the timescale factor, right? So, you know, by how many factors have we sped up cultural evolution to go from a timescale of a month to go to a timescale of a second or a minute? If we had sped up biological evolution by the same amount, we would have gotten from the dinosaurs to us in about 5,000 years. So I think we're, I don't think we're ready for what's unfortunately or fortunately already happening. We're well beyond the kind of world that we were used to in the 1990s and social science has to change. We can look in the past and what we see is a movie on incredible slow motion. So social media, when I study social media, I feel a little bit like somebody studying the DNA replication mechanism, right? In order for uh, an organism to make a copy of itself, it has to do all sorts of fun things and then all sorts of unpleasant things. and. You know, that happens, what, nine months, six months, 12 months, depending on the species. Nowadays, not only does it happen faster, but we're developing new mechanisms. We're inventing new ways to make those copies, new ways to keep those copies faithful, new ways to make those copies, uh, to break them and reform them. A comment here, uh, when we go back and compare Wired to Twitter, let's mm -hmm. say, you write your letter back to Wired, mm -hmm. uh, something is very different in that model than the current model, which is there's a curator in the loop. There's a filter. Uh, yeah. There could be 100, 200 letters into Wired, and they might publish one, right? Mm -hmm. On Twitter, everybody gets their say, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. There is much less curation going on, at least in the raw sense, perhaps what we're searching for are emergent bottoms-up curation tools that allow us to mold the social media environment so it is more positive than it's been today. That's right. You might think of Wired as an incredibly well-engineered multicellular organism, right? There's a head, there's a stomach in accounting. In some sense, we've devolved, right? We've broken apart some of those institutions and we're much more like a soup. That soup ran from, let's say, the Usenet era probably into the Reddit era. But, and this gets to your question most directly, after a long detour, what we're seeing now, I think, is people rediscovering mechanisms to produce stable institutions that last 10 years and perhaps even 100 years. 
So for a while, for example, we worked on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is, as probably with the financial markets, Wikipedia is something that works in practice, but not in theory. We don't have a good theory about how they created an incredibly stable and largely functional institution. It has the same problems that any government has. It has unfairness, it has rebels, it has protests. But Wikipedia probably was the first example of the post-soup era for social media, for social interaction online. We had maybe, okay, early 90s, uh, people imported the structures from the institutions around them, which were mostly university institutions. People were online because they were at a university. They got their account there. AOL comes along and the system completely decomposes, right? So uh, those of us of a certain age talk about eternal September, the day when the new people came and they never stopped coming. Wikipedia was able to handle that new era. And we're very curious about essentially what we think of as a common law system that emerged. Uh, it's not a Napoleonic top-down code civil. It's a much more informal way of resolving disputes, but not just resolving disputes, keeping the system running, finding ways to provide restorative as opposed to retributive justice. So, okay, let's go on to Twitter, right? So Twitter is, in some sense, even more difficult to run than Wikipedia. Wikipedia always had a goal, right? No one was quite sure what that goal was, but they all knew they had a goal, and sometimes they fight over it. Uh, it's not quite clear what Twitter's goal is. And so out the other side, people have produced mechanisms for forming societies, for forming groups that are reasonably stable, even in the absence of, a, of an idea of where this is all going. One of the things that we noticed, and this is partly just being online, but it's also partly talking to people, what we call qualitative research. What we noticed is this new phenomenon of bottom-up censorship. We're used to, let's say, Facebook or Twitter cutting people out of a conversation. They're corporations. They have to do it, right? You can't have a free speech zone online if that company also has to answer to shareholders and to the people who could sue them if they have to answer to the advertisers. It's just not possible, right? It's not the Agora. It's something far more like a cafe, right? If you go into a cafe and start saying some weird stuff, you'll find yourself kicked out. So we're used to the top-down censorship. What we started to notice was the creation of what are called block lists. So on Twitter, you know, Jim, if you and I really get into it, at some point, you might decide to block me, right? And so blocking is the individual level version of disappearing, right? You tell Twitter, erase Simon completely from my experience. I never want to see him. I never want to see people reply to him. I never want to see him retweeted. I, I don't want to see commentary on anything he's saying. And by the way, if he wants to talk about me, game over too, right? So I, he can't see me as well as I can't see him. So this is something Paul Skellis, a Twitter friend of mine, talks about. He's a classicist, right? The Romans did this. Right? You do something bad enough, they just, they scrub you. They, you can't mention their name. Any document, any statue of them is done. So you can do that on an individual level. And you know, if you have people who think the way you do and who are equally irritated by me, they might also choose to block me. What we saw emerging were these shared lists, these shared blacklists that people were creating. So let's say I'm a member of a particular community. I don't know, let's say I'm a hardcore Democratic Socialist America guy, right? Or let's say I'm a hardcore, you know, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan type, right? 
instead of going through the trouble of eliminating from my life the people who disagree with me in, in a way that I find upsetting, I can look at what my friends are doing, I can look at the people who are blocking them, and I can essentially say, look, give me your list, and I'll just copy it over. And so now what you have is not an individual level decision, but in fact some kind of distributed curation of uh, a filter bubble. So we knew Facebook was creating these. We knew that Facebook, in order to keep you online, was presenting you with information that you wanted to encounter, the friends you agreed with. We didn't like it. We thought this was a problem. And what we see now is people creating their own bubbles. And they're creating those, their own bubbles by consensus. They're not just banning people, but they're giving other people the opportunity to ban exactly the same group. So they're forming in some sense a negative community, negative in the sense that they don't know who's in it, but they certainly know who's not in it. I don't think we know yet what those block lists are going to do. We have science fiction stories of this. We have cases where a community shuns someone, puts a scarlet A and kicks them out into the forest. Well, here we go, right? Let's see what happens, Jim. Let's see what these distributed village style mechanisms will do when they happen, not on the scale of a Hawthorne novel, but on second timescales. Interesting. First, I'd like to remind people that the online world didn't start in the 90s. Thanks, Jim. I, uh, <laughs> I actually worked for a company called The Source in 1980, which was the very first consumer online service. Mm. We had essentially everything that's on the web today at 300 baud character mode only, <laughs> $10 an hour. Just about as fast as you can type. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we quickly had tens of thousands of customers and eventually hundreds of thousands because there was nothing else like it in the world. Soon CompuServe came along, and so it's just useful to remember, There's a, someone should write a book on this, the prehistory of online, because there's actually several generations before AOL, even. Uh, Prodigy. Uh, Delphi, I think I remember. Delphi. Yeah, Delphi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, Jim, this is, this is great, right? It's a great, it's a great story. Um, I remember I, I gave a lecture on Wikipedia, and I had a young guy come up to me who had collected a lot of the old bulletin board systems. And in fact, they had, you know, these were things you dialed up, right? They were the local kind of things we remember from the war games era. And they had even developed a, a packet switching mechanism. People would dial up, the, all the systems would dial into each other and share things around, a little bit like Usenet, no centralized server. One thing I'll say, Jim, and this is, you know, for you and your, your colleagues who are in that world, we're losing all those archives. That stuff is disappearing because when a company shuts down, there's really no incentive for them to spend any sort of money creating an archive, uh, saving it to disk in a sustainable way that we can look at. We're doing work right now, um, even in the 90s, looking at the early Usenet postings. This is to get a handle on the origin of some of these, uh, these online seduction communities, these men's seduction communities. And we can't get stuff from, let's say, 1993, 1994. Some of it's held by Google. We can, we're, you know, we have some guys who maybe shouldn't be scraping Google the way they're scraping it. But this stuff is, is disappearing in a way that stuff didn't disappear in the 18th century, right? That's very interesting. I, I have a very interesting example of that. Very good. Hit me, yeah. Uh, I've been an active member of a, probably the oldest surviving commercial online community called The Well. 
Yes, uh, the well. Started 1985, uh, it was essentially a spinoff of the Whole Earth Review, Stuart Brand, Larry Brilliant, that crew. I've been a member since 89, so I'll be <laughs> on my 30th anniversary this year. Wow. Uh, until recently, I was on the board helping them uh, keep their shit somewhat straight. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, somebody recently suggested that uh, I talk to the British Museum, who was uh, saving uh, these old online services. Unfortunately, I reached out to the archivist and he said, uh, we only have a remit for British sites. Yep. Uh, so I need now to think about who, probably Library of Congress, because uh, the well is continuing to dwindle. It's kind of becoming the uh, Colonial Williamsburg of the internet. It's still a very interesting place. Still has the highest quality discourse, but it's only a few thousand people, a couple thousand people now. And eventually, actuarial science will take its toll, mm -hmm. and it may well close someday. And it would be a horrible shame if the well archive is not preserved. But some very interesting things came out of it, including the EFF, Wired Magazine, Craigslist, were all ideas that were brooded on the well back in the very early 90s when it was almost the uh, reactor where ideas about what the internet was going to be, 90, 91, 92, were happening. I should say, so uh, actually an old, an old colleague of mine, Jamie Murdoch, we worked together as academics. So uh, Jamie spent some time at the Internet Archive. So there are some nonprofits that run this stuff. You know, a big chunk is you put something on a CD-ROM and it's gone in 15 years. Uh, Internet Archive has the servers, has the reliability that you need. But even the curation is hard. It's really difficult to scan through a million things threaded together with some ad hoc database system that was invented by a guy in between, you know, hanging out in uh, the mission. I was on the East Coast in the 90s, and uh, we had the dirtier, meaner, grittier, grungier version of the well called Mindvox. So Mindvox was a local system to the New York City area. Uh, around about 1996, I logged onto Mindvox, and there was just a message on the screen that said, we're shutting down. Good luck. We'll refund any stuff that you've, you've sent us pro rata. The guys running my, as far as I can tell, they got into some pretty heavy drugs. And so the discussion boards we had there, you know, we had the uh, Iron Cross symbol of tyranny, which is what happened when uh, you posted something that was too insane or too crazy, even for Mindvox. But as far as I know, that, that world of, and these were some of the most interesting intellectuals in New York, but also some of the craziest drugged out people in New York, I think we've probably lost that forever. Now, I, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you a story about this, Jim. You know, on my wall, I have uh, a pamphlet from the French Revolution. This is a piece of paper that's stuck around since 1792. Pick it up on the banks of the Seine. Paper sticks around. I can look at it. I don't need a special interface to read that thing. We don't have the kind of interpretability and readability that we got from paper. And a colleague of mine, Tim Hitchcock, says, look, you know, 20 years, 30 years go by, we'll have a better way to preserve this. But, you know, these are the Babylonian tablets and they're getting broken. Yeah, it's, it's something we're thinking about. I'm going to give some more thought on reaching out and see who might preserve the well. So interestingly, I was going to, the uh, reason I thought about the well is that we had a precursor of block lists. Ah. Uh, well was written on, uh, it's got a web interface, but the underlying mechanism is a command line Unix system, and about 20% of the users still use the command line. I've almost thought it'd be funny to offer a channel on Twitch to show kids today people <laughs> actually doing work on a command line. Logging into Pi, right. And doing uh, you know, using a thing called PicoSpan, which is what the well actually runs on. The web thing is kind of a 
magic fingers beast on top of Pico's fan. But anyway, uh, because it was written in this crazed way, uh, users could augment it and add new functionality. And one of the things that was developed probably in the early 90s, 92, 93, I can look it up and find out when exactly, is called bozo filtering. Hmm. Uh, you could create a, a file in your directory called .bozo, I think it was, and you put the username, everybody has a eight, up to eight character username, you know, old fashioned <laughs> kind of thing, right? No spaces allowed. Uh, my username is memetic, double, no, just memetic on the well, M-E-M-E-T-I-C. And you put somebody's name in a bozo filter, and when you're reading their, essentially the forums, it'll say blah, blah, memetic, da-da, time, date, etc. And then in line, it'll say, this comment has been bozo filtered, right? So it's not a complete make you disappear, but it makes your content disappear in the context of the discussions. And you can unbozo people, you can bozo them, as we would say. It was actually quite funny. I will say I took the position from early on, I will never bozo anybody. And I never did. All right. This goes all the way back to you know basic psychological drives, right? When we talk, we want to be heard. And you know, you look online, and when people discover that they're blocked, it's a painful thing. And you would think, I mean, just sort of, you know, if you were a purely rational guy, it's like somebody hates me so much they don't want to hear from me. Well, I probably don't want to hear from them either, right? Uh, you know, screw you too, buddy. But there's something really deep in us, the need for recognition. This is, you know, the Hegelian story, right? The, the story of history is the story of us figuring out ways to recognize each other in uh, increasingly sophisticated and sustainable ways. We had, uh, we had the Bozo filter at MindVox. It had a darker name. It was called the Kill File, right? And I wonder, Jim, you know, uh, the thing about the block list, right, is that they can circulate. And so yeah, I Yeah, that's did, new. Yeah, did, that's, that, that yeah. adds, uh, when you were talking about it, because interestingly, even though I follow this stuff fairly closely, I did not know about block lists until I looked on your site and saw that you had done some research about them. And, <laughs> so, it, and yeah. then it kind of the aha light comes on, okay, this is a whole new level of evolution in that these things are replicatable, they're mimetic, right? And so what does that mean? Well, I mean, if block lists keep going, and you know, most, this, we said this about biological evolution, right? Most ideas die. There's a reason they didn't do it that way. The idea of block lists, particularly since you tell me that this has been running in the well since the 80s, and this might end up being a permanent feature of the online world. And you know, if the online world is where culture is happening now, this may be a driver. It may be something that, that fundamentally influences the way in which uh, we create ideas and the way in which our culture evolves. I, I will say my uh, initial reaction to it was I find it preferable to the top-down censorship. Um, and you said, yes, we have to have, or we will have censorship on the platforms. Yes, at the limit, but I suppose my own gut-level reaction is that we ought to encourage it to be as little as possible. Uh, and again, this is a huge tension, right? I'm in the middle of a number of uh, Facebook arguments about this, right? You know, my own list is we should ban calls to violence against anybody, right? Either personal or by group. Platforms should ban discourse that is in bad faith. Now, this is unfortunately difficult, uh, <laughs> which is a person posts something they know to be untrue, but they do it anyway, and they don't do it satirically. You know, the uh, Pelosi thing could have fallen into bad faith. Though those who retweeted it or posted a link on Facebook may not have been bad faith, so it's very complicated. Third is uh, misrepresentation of who you are. 
and this gets into the vaster question of should there be anonymous posting or not, right? You know, Twitter being a cesspool of anonymity, Facebook at least attempting to produce an emergent network identity of some reasonable fidelity, which of course they're always fighting infiltrators. And oh yeah, and then the fourth, this is again tricky, Popper's paradox of tolerance, right? Which is perhaps we should encourage the banning of people uh, who want to suppress free speech or to reduce the civil rights of identifiable groups. But other than that, I would be in favor of tolerating pretty out there stuff. It's an interesting one, right? I mean, the American legal tradition, right? Sullivan versus New York Times. We have a sense that malicious lies are grounds for a suit. We have, in some sense, a good faith exception. I spent time in Britain. Britain does not have a robust free speech tradition. You can get arrested for uh, saying things that are racist. You can get arrested for saying things that are homophobic. The Official Secrets Act. I mean, there's a whole lot of things. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you sign the wrong piece of paper, right? And I find, um, at this point in time, I find Britain to be an increasingly uncomfortable place to think and to speak. It hasn't stopped anything. It hasn't prevented the emergence of really extreme views and really extreme expressions of those views. What it does do, and maybe this is just me being too much of an American, it has what we call a chilling effect. Even the knowledge that somebody out there is evaluating what you're saying is something that prevents you from thinking clearly. It's something that prevents you from exploring ideas right out to the edge. The distributed nature is tricky too, right? And this is something that happens much more in Britain than the United States, although it happens in you know the most British places like New England liberal arts colleges, is uh, deplatforming or no platforming. And this is something where you know people show up and scream and bang drums and and chant to prevent a speaker from giving a lecture. And people that you and I would think of as you know radicals, but reasonably innocuous radicals in the sense that. No one's going to kill anybody because of what Camille Pergelia says, right? No one's going to kill anybody because of what Jermaine Greer says. And yet both of these people have been no-platformed, or at least in the case of Pergelia's case, people have attempted to no-platform them. You can't stop an army with a law, very well at least. And so if there is going to be some consensus, at least within groups, of the limits of speech, it's going to have to be something that itself evolves. The paradox of tolerance is something that sits out there, but even just getting to tolerance is a huge achievement for a group. I must say, I am very disturbed by the deplatforming movement, right? And the high, high irony that perhaps the uh, hottest deplatforming center is Berkeley, right? The home of the free, free speech, speech movement. Free, yeah. free speech movement. And, uh, and again, if, you know, these people, you might disagree with them, but. Uh, it's funny, it's left and right. It seems to be, you know, it's like getting the flu, right? It's unclear what you have to do wrong to end up in a situation where you can't speak on the campus of a state university. Like, how bad it has to be, I think people are usually surprised. John Ronson had a great book, you know, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. I mean, the, we have not just the big figures, not just uh, the people who've written books. I think uh, Pagini, by the way, came out of, well, she was on Salon for many years, and that came out of the well. That was one of your spinoffs. But, you know, People who are far less, you might say, important in the in the kind of are you going to make the New York Times sense also fall victim to this. It's hard to say where that impulse comes from. And maybe the better way to say it is we have that impulse. It's hard to say why it's been weaponized and magnified in the ways we see online. 
I think it's extraordinarily dangerous and gets us inching towards a possible civil war, right? I mean, literally, I mean, you, you start trying to shout down someone like Ben Shapiro or, you know, Charles Murray. I mean, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they're within the context of reasonably serious speech and they're not threatening anybody. Uh, they're not operating in bad faith as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And the other side starts to apply the same rules. Where, where does that end up? It ends up with blood in the streets. In fact, I wrote a short story called Blood in the Streets. Oh, God, Jim. Uh, uh, <laughs> you can find on my Medium account uh, under Jim Rutt uh, that talks about, uh, it's actually two linked short stories about a series of backs and forth between Antifa and uh, Trump supporters that essentially ends up in a, the beginnings of a civil war. So uh, it could happen. Back in the day, we had a pretty clear dividing line between North and South. Here in Pittsburgh, I used to teach at Indiana University. The geographical separation of the people who would start shooting each other is on the order of yards as opposed to hundreds of miles. It'd be more like the Syrian or Spanish Civil Wars than it would have been oh, like the U.S. Civil War. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Spanish Civil War had at least 10 factions. The Syrian Civil War, many more than that. I think, uh, I, I don't know, I, you like to think that Americans are too sensible. You know, we're, as a country, I think ideologically pretty weak. And of course, it's what drives uh, the people on the far left and the far right kind of nuts, right? We're, we're not so quick to sign on to ideas. We're pretty quick to sign on to uh, ways to exploit people economically. And those go pretty far. And of course, they go back to the founding. But I think this one is hopefully going to be more comedy than tragedy. That would, that would be uh, very hopeful and very good. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next topic. Someone Simon and I both know reasonably well, Murray Gelman, one of the great scientific minds of the 20th century, recently uh, died, I guess it was last week. Mm -hmm. And just an amazing character. I mean, I showed up at the Santa Fe Institute in 2002, mm -hmm. and Murray at that time was probably 70, something like that and was still probably the second smartest person I had ever met. Who, you're killing me, Jim. Who's, who beats Murray? Uh, uh, Eric Smith. Uh, Eric Smith. All right. Uh, uh, and but this is at age 70, right? And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, weighted for age. I'm talking about absolute smart, right? And if you don't know Eric Smith, he's like, ah! Right. I, I tell people, you know, you want to know what humans 2.0 might sort of look like? Go talk to Eric, right? Yeah, well, Eric, Eric, if he's, if he's hearing this, he's squirming in his seat because, you know, these, these uh, advanced mental technologies also come with a high level of humility in his case. Um, you know, Murray is, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, I, a lot of us, we were very uh, sad to see Murray go. Um, I showed up at the Institute and Murray was sharp as you ever wanted somebody who won, the, not just won a Nobel Prize, but won sort of one of the, you know, if there was a Nobel Prize for Nobel Prizes, I think Murray would have, would have had a pretty strong shot at it. You know, there's, there's the classic Apollonian-Dionysian split, right? We have Richard Feynman on one side and we have Murray Gelman on the other. And in terms of people vying for the image of the particle physics, the physics style, hard science personality, uh, they were both very larger than life, right? I think we underrate Murray as just in terms of pure personality. Uh, you know, Feynman, he played the bongos, he picked up women, he was, you know, everything that uh, you wanted out of a madman character. 
Murray was an extremely cultured guy, right? Feynman was somebody who essentially thought culture was literature, art, music of any level of refinement was fundamentally a feminine occupation, right? Feynman was, was somebody who, he played Dance of the Daisies, he couldn't handle it. Murray was somebody whose ability to think through and appreciate art and literature, the products of the human mind, was, I would say, just as much off the scale. Murray was somebody, he was involved in the MacArthur Genius Grants for many years. He was one of the first members of the board. And you and I both know him, Jim. Uh, Cormac McCarthy was one of the first recipients of a, an award that changed his life. He'd written Sutri, but he, his greatest work was in the future. And uh, without question, Murray was involved in that decision. We never know, right? These guys are pretty secretive about it. But to be able to spot a talent like Cormac McCarthy that early, Richard Feynman could have done that, right? I mean, Murray was, he, he had a vision that along artistic lines, along uh, human lines, that I think I've never seen a scientist with that, with that level of ability. We love the, the wacky Feynman character, right? We love um, the fact that he had a really thick Brooklyn accent. Murray can rub people the wrong way, or used to rub people the wrong way, because um, he also knew a great deal about your mind as well. But I think he's, Murray, I think, is due for a reevaluation in the coming years. Yeah, I was always amazed at his breadth. Uh, yeah, the dinner companion. He could talk on almost any topic in amazed, as you say, both uh, cultured and uh, erudite at the same time, right? To this degree, there's a difference between the two. Uh, but the other interesting thing about him, and unlike other, some other characters like that, he was happy to admit he was wrong. On three occasions when I was having a discussion <laughs> with Murray, he somehow wandered into one of my patches and made some strong statement. And I uh, took him through the, the thinking and the logic and the evidence. And he said, you're right, I was wrong three times. I mean, uh, you know, people of Murray's uh, sort to do that. I mean, he really is, was intellectually honest in a deep and fundamental way as well as unbelievably broad. I mean, there's almost no topic you could bring up that Murray didn't have a reasonably informed perspective and a surprisingly large body of uh, information right, about. how you kill you, you crush you, like, you know, Murray got to define wines, right? Forget it, right, you're done. Right? Yeah, I wouldn't even waste my time yeah, on that. Exactly, right? I'll just, I'll, I'll drink Jameson. Um, you know, it's, uh, Murray, I, I think in the modern era, right, we have, and you look at people online, you look at people in the newspapers, I think the, the basic split here is between debaters and thinkers. It's really fun to watch a really good debater just crush somebody, right? But if you are good at debating, you're good at defending a set of ideas that may be wrong. And uh, the, the way to lose a debate is to say, well, Christ, I hadn't thought of that. You might be right. That's not a debate move that's gonna keep you on a podcast. It's not a debate move that's gonna keep you on a TV show. Murray was not a debater, right? Uh, he was not somebody who'd come in with an idea and, you know, walk all over anybody. He was a thinker and he was somebody who is great to have at a dinner party, uh, great to have on a long hike. But he's not somebody who would have the, you know, 50 million follower account on social media. Yeah, I think that's probably correct, though he did have one 
item that I was aware of that he was very doctrinaire about, which his hatred of mathematicians. <laughs> uh, where that came from, I don't know, because obviously the boy was extraordinarily talented in mathematically, but uh, at any kind of discussion about mathematicians, he'd like throw a fit and go, mathematicians, full of shit! Well, this, I mean, you know, that's one thing he and Feynman had in common. Um, you know, Murray, I mean, okay, what did Murray do? I mean, he did many things. One of the things is, of course, he, he developed the mathematics behind uh, the structure of the proton, right? He discovered, discovered, invented, whatever you want to say, quarks. My understanding was, uh, I mean, so he used a chunk of mathematics, Lie algebras, it's called. My understanding is Murray just had to dig that out of the scrolls of ancient wisdom, right? The mathematicians, the way they deal with the objects that physicists love is in a profoundly bizarre and unpleasant way. I was a physics major in college, and being a physics major, you think you know everything, and so a bunch of us took the most advanced mathematics class that we were allowed to take, uh, Math 55, and we studied what, what's called real analysis, right? So it's just stuff you draw, right? It's like curvy lines, straight lines with an X and a Y. And as a physicist, you understand those things very well. And so I was like, well, how hard can this be? Uh, we had a textbook, uh, we called it Rooted, after the author. And, you know, you would not believe the bizarre and unpleasant things mathematicians will do to a function. And completely useless, right, for anything uh, that we cared about, right? Completely useless for the structure of matter, completely useless for the function of economics, uh, the function of a market, completely useless for writing a computer program. So, I mean, you know... I guess they have fun. You know, they're, they're you know, talking about alien species that will drive you mad. They're one of them. I love it. So uh, a, a mini Murray. I mean, well, I mean, there's, you know, Feynman, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous theorem uh, that mathematicians discovered, which says that you can take a sphere and cut it into pieces and make two spheres of exactly the same size as the old one. Right. Uh, I, like what? Right. Like that's that's you know, that makes that doesn't make any sense. And of course, how do they do it? They do some, you know, crazy construction that involves transfinite numbers. And uh, Feynman said, well, you know, look, spheres are made of atoms. Right. And I can count the atoms. And I, I tell you, they, you know, unless some very, you know, high energy things happen, that number stays constant. Right. So Murray's distaste uh, for that gang is not something restricted to just one or two. I love it. All right. Well, Murray, farewell. One of the greatest people I'll probably ever meet and uh, some time very well spent uh, with Murray over the years. Uh, let's next go on to uh, cultural evolution, sort of broadly construed over very long time periods. <laughs> Yeah, so biological evolution, what does it do? One of the great one-liners is that your body is a really great model of the world that you encounter, right? You have feet that you walk on because we have a gravitational field that we sit in. You have a bilateral symmetry as opposed to a radial symmetry because you don't live underwater, right? You know, you have a left hand and the right hand, but not an up hand and a down hand. So you can think of yourself as a story about the world, and in particular, a story about the physical world, the chemical world, and to a great extent now, uh, as a model of the biological world as well. So your, your body is, has a really good theory about small things that make you sick as well. That's biology, right? That's the physical stuff that uh, you really can't change very well. I mean, you can replace parts of it, Jim, right? But uh, by and large, your, your body plan is fixed. So, uh, what is cultural evolution? What does it do for us? The underlying mechanism is the same. Darwin spotted this really early on. The underlying mechanism is we talk, we listen, we repeat, uh, we change, we alter. 
the DNA uh, mechanism for us is the human brain, far more complicated, right? Um, your DNA has these ribosomes, they, they make a copy or they, they translate the internal representation into proteins. Your brain is the ribosome for culture. It translates internal representations into actions, behaviors, and speech. Uh, it's far more complicated. But underlying all of that is uh, the sense that most of what we see around us is the product of we know not who, right? Who, who made this language? Who made the idea of a conversation? Uh, who made the idea of a building with windows and with mortises and handles? To one extent, they're reasonably adaptive, as we say, right? Windows keep the heat in, and uh, but uh, the rain out, the rain out, and uh, let the light through. But you know, they can't get too big, or you, the room will get too hot. The, so, in some sense, a lot of our culture is adaptive. Uh, and there's some really fun stories of um, you know the the ways in which even things as basic as our language are adaptive to the climates in which that language evolved. Italian has a different pattern than Swedish, in part because Italians are speaking in a country that's much warmer. You don't have to be in such close quarters. You can stand further apart. It's also probably why we gesture a lot as being half Italian-American, because, you know, when you're that far away from somebody in the, on the patio, right, you, you need to really, really need to show what you're saying. So, uh, you know, some of this is, is adaptation to the physical world, but some of it is adaptation to the very nature of knowledge. I secretly, as an ex-physicist, uh, I'm a Platonist, right? I think there are underlying structures to the... Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people can see your, your, your large Italian gestures right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I look at the development of, let's say, a political system, so working with Alexander Barron and uh, a group at Indiana when we were studying the evolution of discourse in the French Revolution, how they're working out how to run a country... I see them as doing two things, right? One is responding to the, you know, the necessities on the ground, responding to the fact that, you know, once you decide to hold a revolution, somebody's got to run the pension system. And if you dismantle the church, someone's got to keep records so that all the gold doesn't disappear into someone's pocket. Uh, this is one of the people on this paper, Rebecca Spang, who's a historian, and, you know, her view on the French Revolution is in part the idea that we've neglected some of that stuff, right? Like, yeah, like in a, Iraq, you know, think about the stupid... <laughs> shit that we did in Iraq, right? Literally, the money did disappear. The pensions were gone. They go, yeah, they go uh, back to the city of London, mostly, right? Exactly, right? So, so, yeah, so, you know, some of that stuff is adaptation to circumstances, right? You hold a revolution, everyone declares war, that you've got to run, a, you've, there's got some problems. But I also see the story of the French Revolution, the story of uh, the Soviet era, something we have under study right now through people's diaries, uh, the evolution of theater, I see these things as in part humankind's contact with basic objects of sense and knowledge. That there is such a thing as a Lie algebra out there. It's not simply a social construction that's propagated by the fact that Murray was supercharging and had a twinkle in his eye, right? That what we see is our adaptation to the invisible. We see in the French Revolution, for example, people encountering some of the most basic ideas of ethical behavior. Unlike the Americans, the French hold a revolution and one of the first things they do is free the slaves. To us today, this is something that we expect people to understand. We don't think of slavery as something that, hey, in one context is fine, in another context not so fine. So when we look at uh, what people are doing, 
what I'm most interested in is the way that they deform their minds in response to the invisible. Expand on that a little bit. Okay, all right. Here's, here's a, a great one. A, a, a lovely statement. <laughs> all right. Let's have it more, make it oh, more sorry. Okay. So, all right. So, um, uh, here's one, right? Uh, this, is, uh, this is an unusual project uh, we have with Kent Chang. So, Kent joined us, and I said, what do you want to work on? And Kent said, you know, I want to work on theater, and I want to work on the fact that theater is uh, famously a endeavor that gay people are drawn to, in particular gay men, right? And... I'm interested in the idea that, let's say, take someone like Oscar Wilde, right, as gay as they come. Oscar Wilde writes plays that are heterosexual romances, right? Famously, The Importance of Being Earnest is on the surface about two men who fall in love with two women, and they're all nuts, and they're all, you know, eating, you know, cucumber sandwiches with the edges cut off. And what we ended up looking for is the ways in which Oscar Wilde is encoding human relationships that are fundamentally different from the surface that he's describing, right? On the surface, these are really normative. Uh, highly conventional. Highly conventional. I saw it recently, class, right? actually. Yeah. Oh, you said it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, our local, we have a great Shakespeare theater in Stanton, Virginia, the American Shakespeare Center, and they also occasionally put on other plays, and they happened to put on The Importance of Being Earnest about two years ago. I had never seen it, and it was like, all right, this is like a beautiful clockwork piece of machinery, right? I mean, it's an unbelievable play. And I think, you know, clockwork is a nice point, right? Uh, you look at a clock face and you know there's something behind it that looks nothing like numbers and, and hands, right? So, you know, what is Oscar Wilde doing? Well, like the, the simple thing to say, and both Kent and I think this is, is not the case, but the simple thing to say is, you know, there's a lot of subtle code sitting in here, right? And, you know, there are some bits of slang that if you were a certain type of guy and you were, you know, in a certain social world, you, you understood that he was saying a couple things that were not exactly uh, the straightest things in the world. But we think it's pretty limiting to view something like the importance of being earnest as simply an encryption of something else. What we think he's doing, and uh, we see this in not just in earnest, but in a long tradition that includes some people like Tennessee Williams, uh, we see Wilde imagining new ways for people to be together. And not necessarily sexual, right? Um, we see Oscar Wilde is working out the terms of a male friendship, for example. And you know, Wilde, when he began, was not uh, was somebody who thought mostly about how people relate to each other. So what we see him doing is finding ways or describing and implicitly projecting onto the stage modes of being that today we might even take for granted. So for example, the idea uh, that uh, the idea that people's sexualities are more fluid than we would expect is something that we see there. We see both examples in the two main male characters. Wilde's discovering something. He's discovering in those plays, um, he's discovering facts about how humans can be together, how humans can form relationships. These are possibilities that he both creates and runs across. Daniel Bornstein, who writes, um, uh, is a librarian of Congress, has written a couple Great books. Historian. Great historian. And he has a book called The Creators, and he has a book called The Discoverers, right? The creators are the artists and the discoverers are the scientists. Oscar Wilde, in one sense, he's a creator. Bernstein got it right. But in another sense, uh, I think we can view artists also as discoverers. They learn things about our minds and tell us about our minds in ways that have massive downstream consequences. They, they don't just, you know, it's uh, Kurt Cobain didn't invent wearing flannel. You know, that's something that disappeared. But he also created 
uh, cognitive patterns that enlarged our ability as a species. And in order for that to happen, there had to be some contact with the real, something beyond just the idea that we all agree to say the thing that we all agree to say. Interesting. So at one level, you're talking about an unfolding, it seems to me, that culture is at any given time X, but there's an opportunity, and it happens constantly, to unfold into new areas, right? Uh, you know, one of the things I look back at our era, I find amazingly interesting is how rapidly point of view about homosexuality has changed. You know, Stonewalls was not that long ago, right? And now gay marriage is accepted everywhere. Uh, and frankly, by almost everybody under the age of 35, right? And I would, would have never guessed it, uh, you know, in say 1985 that this could happen so quickly, but it's a broader unfolding because it actually fits perfectly well with the Declaration of Independence, right? All men, and of course, <laughs> created equal women, let's add them too. Uh, I mean, that, that is why, one, you know, when you think about it, it's an unfolding, but it is grounded in something we already had. Emerson has this line, I, I encountered with Stanley Cavell, our new yet undiscovered America. You know, we are, I think, building things whose consequences we don't completely understand. Pythagoras discovers the fact that the square root of two can't be composed out of a bunch of rods that you divide into pieces, right? I don't think that Pythagoras would have anticipated where that would end up. Uh, Celia Hayes is, uh, at Oxford is somebody that we've been strongly influenced by. She has a great book that just came out on what she calls Cognitive Gadgets. There's a trend right now, it's a politically popular trend, to overestimate the power of biology in influencing human behavior. So evolutionary psychology is only partly a science. Uh, it gets some things right. But it misses a lot. And um, Hayes is wonderful because she, in some sense, squares the circle, right? Culture has lifted off from biology at least 5,000 years ago. What you and I do is in no way sitting inside our genes. And it's more than just the adoption of a particular, let's say, a particular language. It's more than just the adoption of a particular set of chord sequences in a piece of music. It's also the creation of the conditions of possibility for those. We don't just invent music, we invent the idea of music. And Hayes, I think, has a very good account of how the conditions of possibility of culture are themselves a product of culture, something that is not hard-coded in us. You know, this debate goes, if you want to get deep on this, it goes back to Chomsky and the universal grammar. Chomsky looks at language and says, there's no way that this is something that we invented. This has to be hard-coded. I think we're coming around, and partly simply through empirical investigation, I think we're coming around to the idea that Chomsky was probably wrong about universal grammar. I had a long, long conversation with John Holland about just this item. And uh, he was very strongly of the school that uh, Chomsky grossly underestimated the amount of data that the child is, is exposed to, because he was thinking in terms of formal instruction. And well, formal instruction is part of it. That's by no means the whole thing. Uh, and that was probably his number one interest right before he died, was trying to figure out how to demonstrate Chomsky was wrong. It's, uh, I mean, this is a great point, right? You know, Chomsky came at language essentially as a computer scientist. I mean, he wasn't a computer scientist, but if you look at the early stuff he's doing in the 60s, it's yanked right out of the theory of computer programming languages. If you look in the modern era, and this is something that 
certainly a colleague, uh, Ricard Soleil, has worked on. It's also stuff that we see in Josh Tenenbaum's lab at MIT. You know, Holland, I think, was more right than wrong. We can learn, and we can learn from a set of data that in the past I think we would have seen as, as too impoverished, as too small. Uh, children learn language. Soleil discovers these explosive bursts in how language fits together. He's not the first person to notice it. He's produced an incredibly interesting mathematical model of it, though. We go from words to word pairs, and at some point there appears to be a little phase transition, right? There's a discrete jump, and all of a sudden we're producing the kinds of sentences that, you know, where there's a continuum from that to a Henry James novel. How that happens is mysterious. But, uh, you know, someone like Hayes would say, and I would tend to agree, that uh, the very possibility of that happening was something that we developed independent of our genes. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're familiar at all with a very iconoclastic uh, scholar, Daniel Everett. No, I don't know Daniel. Uh, ch check him out. Okay. Uh, uh, he takes a very strong argument that language is a social construct. Yeah. I'm still working my way through his books, and I am kind of at the, uh, hmm, maybe, uh, as I said earlier on, my answer to all these questions is always both. Uh, I do suspect there is something genetic that uh, allows us to be way more uh, linguistic than chimps, who are, we are very close to. And on the other hand, I don't believe, uh, my instinct at least, I'm not an expert in this area, but my instincts are that Chomsky's wrong, uh, that we don't have a strong universal grammar with 17 switches, which determines our language, right. if for no other reason that you know, Chomsky's assertion about recursion strikes me as overwrought. Right? There is at least one language without recursion. Everett was the anthropologist that studied that language. Ah, I see. Uh, okay. Which is interesting. That's wonderful. And further, you know, if we look at language in the raw, we almost never see we never see more than four levels of recursion and seldom f see more than three, right? And, you know, being a computer dude, there's a big difference between universal recursion and, uh, you know, a series of nested statements three or four levels deep. It's a great story, the cat who chased the rat who ate the cheese, right? This is tail recursion, I think, Jim, right? It's an easier one to process. Years ago, when I was a student in middle school, we studied Latin, right? And, you know, we read Julius Caesar, we tried our hand at Virgil. And at some point, our Latin master said, no one actually spoke like this, right? These incredibly Baroque, intricate, uh, inflected sentences where the verbs are showing up in all sorts of places, this was not how they actually got things done day to day, right? Virgil has constructed a language that in some sense is sitting on top of Latin, right? If, if Latin's the assembly code, right, he invented Lisp, right? So... You know, the stuff that Chomsky was responding to in many ways is something that we built through our symbolic systems. The idea of recursion, how often do we use it, Jim? We use it in part for social signaling uh, to show that, you know, I read a lot of stuff and I was educated by people who read a lot of stuff and probably my parents read a lot of stuff too, right? But, you know, the transcript of our day-to-day -day getting things done and including really high stakes things like going to the doctor or making a trade on the market. My guess is, is we're, we're roughly working with a regular grammar here, right? We're working with essentially a finite state machine to get things done. Indeed. All right, let's move on to our uh, next topic, uh, which is consciousness. <laughs> this, is a, this is a fun story for us. Consciousness is one of the things that we think distinguishes us from the animals. 
we can go back and forth on the extent to which animals have a consciousness. Of course, the word itself decomposes in lots of different ways. Is consciousness simply the ability to have a phenomenal experience of pain, for example? My computer, if I do something wrong on my computer, it might crash. We don't think it feels pain. We do wonder, do salmon feel pain? Is it okay to eat a salmon? Or was it, you know, having this sort of the experience that you and I would associate with being hooked through the mouth and bashed on the head? So that's, that's one notion of consciousness. Another one that we get from, in many ways, a computer science perspective, but also from a philosophical perspective, is uh, consciousness is the ability to reflect on our actions and our own minds. Both of these definitions have gotten us into some really tight squeezes. We don't really have a good story about what the philosophers call qualia, right? The idea that if we're sitting around, um, I'm looking at a big New Mexico flag here and it's yellow, right? I can tell you it's yellow. Uh, I can tell you the configuration of the lines on it, but there are some things we think that we can't quite communicate to each other. You have to be there. Well, yeah, in fact, I remember in second grade asking my teacher, is your sense of red the same as my sense of red? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, she just said, shut up, kid. Shut up, right? I mean, this is Hume, right? I mean, we've been worried about those things for a long time. Dan Dennett says, you know what, qualia, it's, it doesn't exist. And Dan is one of the great demystifiers. Uh, he's a bit like a Darwinian Wittgenstein. He sits around telling you that all the things that you really wanted to think about uh, don't actually exist. Yeah, Wittgenstein I always describe as a very long journey to nowhere. He's, yeah, he's the guy who ruins the party, right? And, you know. I think he's right, actually, but uh, <laughs> it's a, another discussion for another day. But. Yeah, it's what happens, yeah, it's what happens when you get a, when you get a Central European and stick him in, in Britain for too long. He gets, he gets a bit too practical for the world. But that's one thing that's sitting out there. And I think qualia are real. During difficult times in my life, I stopped believing in qualia. So I think it's actually a measure of, of how well things are going for me. I think a mentally healthy person does indeed uh, reliably have experiences that are first person centered, experiences that rely fundamentally on the existence of a, of a subject, a perceiving subject. So let me uh, interrupt here, yeah, if you don't yeah, mind. Sure. If I have a day job, which I don't, it would sort of be in this area. I have built mental, uh, computer simulations of very, very rudimentary consciousnesses, et cetera, read like 50 books, 200 papers. You know. uh, so I have some thoughts, at least in this area. First, you're using consciousness in a way that uh, seems to distinguish human consciousness fairly cleanly from subhuman consciousness. Mm -hmm. And at least you started going down that road, but then you said there's problems. And I, I suppose I come from the other view. Mm -hmm. uh, Gerald Edelman, mm -hmm. uh, he distinguishes primary consciousness, which is the same consciousness we share with a dog, approximately. The, the dog is alive in a scene of some sort. It's the same dog every time it wakes up. It has you know similar attributes, similar tastes, uh, similar likes and dislikes. And then he also posits something called extended consciousness, which is this a little bit less clear on what that is, this ability to perhaps reflect on our own consciousness. And then I also uh, look pretty strongly to John Searle. And I really like Searle and his, you know, sort of down and dirty definitions of consciousness. You know, he says, consciousness is a lot like the digestive system. Mm -hmm. You can't point at it and say, this is the digestive system. You know, it's the lips, it's the throat, mm -hmm. it's the liver, it's the stomach. Uh, and then the rut corollary there is consciousness is like the digestive system. It often has the same output. <laughs> but and under those scenarios, human consciousness is only a bit different than subhuman consciousness. And maybe has one or two new tricks, perhaps 
uh, Terence Deacon's symbolic uh, thinking, maybe. And then there's others who think that it's a very bright line and human consciousness is nothing like animal consciousness. What do you, you bring up some great minds here. And when I first started thinking about this seriously, maybe back in college, but then this, this obsession kept going for many, many years, you know, the, the kind of default mode for thinking about these issues is the computational analogy. We are thinking machines. Whatever we consider fundamental to our experiences uh, relates to the performance of a function. That has taken us pretty far, right? So, uh, you know, famously, this theory of consciousness called IIT, integrated information, the idea that what you need is a sufficiently coupled set of reasoning devices. And once they're tightly enough together, like, whomp, right out the other side comes what we like to think of as consciousness. It's some emergent property, sort of like a market, right? Market's full of fools, the market's pretty smart. At what point do you go from, you know, a ship of fools to something that reliably gets us coffee on the table every day? You know, it's certainly a scientific theory. It doesn't, it doesn't have to say that there's a spirit sitting in your head kicking your pineal gland around. But there's also something still unsatisfying about it for me, Jim. And I think consciousness is one of those problems that gets us to the limits of science as we do it. We think of ourselves as evolved beings. There's no reason we should have gotten it all right. There's no reason that you know, the cognitive gadget of science is answerable to the world as it is. It's at least partially so. We're, you know, we build things, we discover things. Murray discovered the quarks. So it works pretty well, but there's no reason to think that we're a universal translator, that our, our reasoning processes, our symbolic representations can solve every problem. Even if they could, there's by no means a guarantee that they have. You know, our modern model is you know, no older than 1625, right? <laughs> Science plus axiomatic systems joined together, right? You know, big symbols, Newton, right? right. Uh, and so that's very, very recent. We talk about 5,000 years ago, 400 years ago. is almost no time at all, right? And so even if our tools are universal uh, problem-solving machines, which they might be, 400 years is nowhere near enough to have run the universe through the engine and come up with results. And those are two different points of view, but they can both leave us at a current state where there is a shitload yet still to be discovered about the nature of reality. Think about, uh, you look at some of the smartest people in the history of the human species, right? And, you know, for me, okay, Socrates, Plato, these are up there. You read something like the Symposium where Plato, through the voice of Socrates, is laying out a theory of, of knowledge, you see it in the Republic too. And, you know, these, these guys are not dumb, right? They, they have a sense of symbolic systems, right? They called it geometry and music, right? I don't think that the stuff we do today, at least at the abstract level, would be incomprehensible to these guys. And put it another way, they're completely comprehensible to us. Uh, but the further on that story goes, the further on the symposium goes, the stranger and stranger things get, right? And at some point, you know, Socrates is hanging out with a, this sort of mystical spirit and he's climbing ladders and he's looking at boys, a whole thing, right? Something goes weird here. Well, not that weird, as you said. It doesn't strike us as even as strange as science fiction. It's, that's true. I mean, it would get you kicked out of even CMU, right, if you, if you did this for too long. He seems to go beyond what we informally think of as, you know, our best mechanisms. 
you know, what if we took that seriously, right? You know, you and I learned, you know, take Murray seriously. He's not always right, but you can go pretty far if you take a genius seriously. What's that all about then? He's not a fool. He doesn't, he's, he's not someone who believes in the little reality of angels, but what's going on, right? What have, what have we missed in our computational metaphors? What have we missed in even our evolutionary metaphors? That's something that we didn't get 1625. We didn't have that took us until literally until Darwin or maybe his grandfather had to blow it up. Consciousness may be one of those things that we don't yet have the gadget to understand and explain. I think that's possible. And I think because there is so much unclear clarity about the topic, there's a lot of bad discourse about the topic. It's <laughs> right. amazing. And, you know, one of the ones I'd like to add to this is this, to my mind, wasted argument on can a computer be conscious, right? And I uh, lift uh, pretty much full from Searle and then extend it a little bit. John Searle's perspective, the answer is no, because the consciousness is what a human body does with the wetware that it has in the same way it does digestion. However, I then extend that to say in the pharmaceutical industry and in the food processing industry, we have things called digesters, right? Mm -hmm. Which are used to grow all kinds of biochemical feedstocks and you know, food products, et cetera. And we can say by analogy that these things are digesters used in the pharmaceutical industry and they're analogous to how digestion works in the humans. In the same way, we can create in computers something we will call consciousness which is analogous to the consciousness that is the emergent phenomena from various uh, bits of meat and neuron, but it won't be the same thing. Searle stop by just saying it's not the same thing, and I go one step further, but say what we can build things that are analogous to. And you know, we go back to Tononi and IIT, right? Yeah. Having done a lot of reading about Tononi and anti-Tononi, I come tentatively to the conclusion that. Uh, perhaps integrated information is necessary but not sufficient, right? Uh, and that if we measure II on an analogous machine mm -hmm. that has something we analogously call consciousness, it will show a high II. Uh, but so will other things that aren't conscious. And so will a human if we could measure it. I sort of split the difference and say we can talk about machine consciousness, but we just have to realize that it is not exactly the same thing as meat consciousness as human consciousness, uh, in the same way that a, a digester used in the food industry isn't the same as our digestive system, but they both do sort of similar things. Here's a way to come at this problem. What do we want consciousness to do? And if we look at, let's say, the cultural effects of consciousness, which is kind of an odd thing to say, you go back in the anthropological record, and this is Carl Jaspers invents this phrase, he calls it the axial era. 800 BC, approximately. Exactly, right? He's got to stretch it, you know. But at some point in time in the history of the species, and this happens, you know, throughout the globe, it's almost like these little fires lighting up, right? Uh, you have the Upanishads in the Indian tradition. You have some of the, what we might think of as the modern books in, uh, in the Torah. You have, you know, my favorites in Greece, right? You have the dialogues. You have Parmenides a little bit before. You have the emergence of Buddhism. Each of these things is a dramatic shift in the nature of culture. Before the Axial Age, the priests were also the kings, or the priests were fundamentally allied with earthly power. Out the other side of the Axial Age, out the other side of the Old Testament, Socrates and Plato, Buddhism, the Upanishads, 
all of a sudden you have people discovering this notion of the transcendental. People deciding that there was actually something beyond the purely human biological realm. Jaspers thinks of that as a consciousness that emerges at the level of a society. And maybe the right thing to say is, you know what, one way we know we're conscious is we're, we're having this kind of conversation, and this kind of conversation is happening in the context of people who, because they had conversations like this, built a recording device in a university. So then you say, all right, our, our computer's conscious. Well, one thing I say is, okay, well, look, I might run one of these consciousness assays on the iPhone, and okay, maybe it is or it isn't. But I want to say, you know, where's the great religious work of the computers, right? What have they done recently? You know, have they had an axial age? Have the machines written the Upanishads or have they had the Socratic dialogues? And answer, I think, no, right? So under that test, we're the only ones. Still. So, I mean, I would suggest that using my analogy, the computers aren't even there yet, right? Yeah. The smartest computers in the world, maybe they're at the uh, shrew stage, right? right. Uh, and we don't uh, expect shrews to write Shakespeare, right? right? And so, you know, give it 30 years, and then your question uh, may be more valid. Something, these analogous consciousnesses may well come up with things that we think of as on par with our best creations, but it's too early to tell yet. I mean, this is, you know, this gets back, I think, all the way to the beginning of our, of our conversation, right, uh, with the Fermi paradox. You know, in the end, the, the, the reason we're really keen about aliens is, is you know, well, we want to hang out with them, right, because we're bored of ourselves. <laughs> you know, maybe the question, if that does happen, if these machines do have their axial age, if their consciousness does actually bubble up to the visible level, you know, maybe the question is, is will they be fun to hang out with? Will we have new playmates on the Earth? Again, every nerd believed, yes, that there were aliens out there, and every 12-year-old nerd boy, at least in my era, believed we could eventually build AIs that we could talk to. Absolutely, right? And when we're talking about the Fermi paradox, it's not just that they'd be fun to talk to, which they would be, or if they didn't kill us, right? <laughs> right. You know, the silent forest theory, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> uh, you know, the reason everybody's quiet out there is because there's a certain number of predators, and if you speak up, you will get eaten. But there's another much deeper issue, right? If we are indeed alone, we have a gigantic moral responsibility, <laughs> right? If we are the only general intelligence in the universe, we have a greater duty to preserve ourselves than if they're relatively routine. Because uh, we may be a point of the spear of evolution, and it is perhaps our destiny to bring life to an unalive universe. And if we knew that to be a fact, which unfortunately proving a negative is extraordinarily difficult, uh, but if we didn't know that for a fact somehow, I suspect it would make us take everything we do a shitload more seriously. This is exactly the thing I would expect from a good self-replicating organism. Right? <laughs> uh, like, do we have a moral duty? Well, I mean, only if moral duties are beyond our species, because if we disappear and morality disappears with us, well, then we're done, right? So that's fine. This is, maybe here's a way into this, into this intuition. Um, when we study, we look into big archives. Um, sometimes we get famous people. And here's the phrase we sometimes use. Sometimes we get ordinary people. This always rubs me the wrong way, this phrase ordinary, because we're absolutely extraordinary. There's nothing like a human mind. The differences between two human minds are so negligible compared to the difference between uh, a human mind and a non-human mind. You know, if you're a cognitive scientist or you, you study social behavior from a cognitive point of view, it can be an overwhelming experience to walk into a crowd. And not because the crowd is irrational, but because you're surrounded by this 
unbelievable mechanisms, uh, unbelievable creatures. It's not implausible that there's nothing like it elsewhere in the world or elsewhere in the universe. I think neither of us would be surprised if a self-replicating organism worked out that they could use solar energy to make copies of itself. That's not a surprise, right? We wouldn't be blown away. We'd be thrilled if we found life on Mars. We wouldn't be shocked. It would be a shocking event to find things with consciousness, things that we could hang out with, or at least we thought one day we could hang out with. If we discovered that, I think we would be shocked. There's something miraculous about us. It would be the biggest news in the history of the world. <laughs> well, it would be, you know, in some sense, the end of news as we know it. Exactly. Let's go to a last topic and then let's wrap up. Wonderful. Current science fiction. I used to be a true science fiction aficionado. In fact, uh, growing up, uh, my main source of science fiction was the library. So I prided myself on reading every single science fiction book that was printed in hard copy, which wasn't that large a percentage, mm -hmm. but it was the better stuff of it. Uh, unfortunately, over the years, getting distracted into many other areas in fiction and nonfiction, particularly literary fiction for my, uh, mm -hmm. my fiction reading, I have kind of drifted away from sci-fi. I'd love to hear what is cool in sci-fi today. In one sense, I think I'm, I'm pretty much in tune with what everyone's reading, right? So Ted Chiang obviously blew up. Uh, Ken Liu is translator of uh, uh, Six and Liu. Chinese science fiction has reached the modern era, right? That's super, super exciting. That's the three body problem. Three body problem. Ken actually is, so Ken is the translator for Six and he's also a science fiction writer. And I was thrilled to see he had invented, uh, so, you know, we have British Victorian steampunk. He has Chinese empire silk punk, right? So reimagining the legends of a culture in a way that's not quite fantasy, I think, because it's a story about the technology and not simply the magic. Anybody who's, who's bumped into science fiction is going to bump into this. One of the things that I do with science fiction, and this is partly because I'm interested in the cultural evolution of, you know, the last 10 minutes of evolution, is the fact that science fiction drives culture. It tells us stories and people just can't help but make it real, right? So the Star Trek communicator is a great example. And, uh, you know, here it is, right? Uh, you know, Apple Health, you know, give it another 10 years and it will die to tell you if you have something really deeply It'll wrong with your body. It'll be the tricorder, right? It just, it, the thing is just smaller than the tricorder, right? Yeah. We did better. So science fiction is, it helps us imagine. Neil, Neil Stevenson, there was a great project at Arizona, uh, Arizona State called the Hieroglyph Project, right? And the idea was that you know, and this is a bit politically loaded, but, you know, science fiction had got too dystopian and it had forgotten the idea that Arthur C. Clarke invented geostationary satellites. Somebody has to tell a story to motivate the engineers to build it, right? Because actually it's really boring building a spaceship. But we are in an era where our most interesting technologies are social. And so I've started asking people, not what are you reading, but what are the books that people are reading that account for the cultures they've created. And one of the groups I'm completely fascinated by are the people associated, not with the university system, but with all of the tech money that floats around out there. In part because of things like deplatforming, some of the wealthiest and most interesting people on the West Coast have just given up on the university. Haven't given up on the tech schools, right? So CMU's fine, MIT's fine, but they have given up on the liberal arts university. And they're developing parallel systems. Peter Thiel says drop out of college, uh, things like the Singularity Institute, now the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. These are groups that exist on the, from one sense, from the point of view of an academic, they exist on the margins, right? 
so the Future of Humanity Institute, if you're a professor at Oxford, looks like a, you know, a rented room with an ugly chair. But if you flip that around, Oxford is the thing that's a rented room with an ugly chair. And what we see is people creating a very different idea of what learning, teaching, and research could be. So I know some of these people, they're fascinating people. I could give you all their names, but they'd probably be embarrassed to be associated with this. Um, sometimes people call this the rationalists, you know, maybe after Leibniz. You know, there are some famous characters that surround that group. Uh, Eliezer is one. I'm sure you've encountered him. Yeah, he and I have had uh, a few chats. I could imagine uh, immovable objects and unstoppable <laughs> forces. So, okay, what I wanted to know was, look, what are, I, you know, great, what are you, you guys, guys reading? Yeah, yeah well, exactly, right? You guys are smart, fine. You write some, you write your code in Haskell and you build a blockchain. Good job, right? But, you know, what are your fantasies? You know, what's your Star Trek? Uh, what is your account of what things could be how do you know if you're falling short of yourself? You know, I know that something's gone wrong in my life if I think George Eliot would not like me, right? So I, I asked this, and one of the answers is, and this, this won't surprise you, right, Werner Vinge. Right. But we think of Werner Vinge as the guy who invented the idea of the singularity. One of the books that a friend of mine pointed me to was part two of a trilogy, right, you know, is a book called The Children of the Sky. By Vinge? Uh, by Vinge. This is not a new book, right? This is maybe a couple years ago. And Children of the Sky, I think, encapsulates the, the fantasies and the mythology of that group. It's a story about they're coming for us, right? The, the silent forest was right and we screwed it up, right? They're coming for us. And a small group of people have crash landed on a planet that's reasonably backward. And what they have to do is bootstrap themselves into a sufficiently post-industrial civilization that they stand a chance at surviving. Children of the Sky has encoded in there is an extreme version of the power of the mind. Uh, the idea that if you're smart enough, right, from a grain of sand, you infer the Sahara. If you're smart enough from a cup of water, you know Niagara. It's something that comes up in quasi-science fictional form for David Deutsch, right, in Fabric of Reality and Beginning of Infinity. Children of the Sky is the dramatic version of that. It has some sex, it has aliens that are actually a bunch of minds all linked together and they look like pets, right? So it has a bunch of tropes that we're familiar with, uh, but the overall structure is this idea that the universe in one sense is fundamentally inhospitable, it's trying to kill us. But in another sense, the laws of physics drive us inexorably to uh, a horizon of infinite possibility. So if you're sitting in a polyamorous nerd commune in Berkeley right now, the Children of the Sky answers, I think, to your fantasies in a way that, and I use that word right in a nice way. I don't mean that in a, in a psychologically condescending way. It's a mythology that you can get your teeth into and tells you if you're doing it right. Any other examples? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I brought up David Deutsch, right? Uh, Deutsch is you know, one of these unbelievable super geniuses. Yeah, I don't think he'd uh, prefer to have his stuff thought of as science fiction at this point. Well, you know, uh, so, you know, the two books, Fabric of Reality and Beginning of Infinity, they're incredibly compelling books. And if you read them, I mean, he has one chapter, I think it's in Beginning of Infinity, uh, where he battles his way out of a brain in the vat, right? He explains exactly how he's going to show you that, you know, you're not living in a, in a simulation. It takes on a science fictional angle. Uh, one of the things I found really amusing, I was reading, I think this is in Fabric of Reality, the earlier book. He gives this proof from first principles that the matter density of the universe is below critical. That, uh, you know, omega, as we say, it's cosmologist, omega is less than one. And you read it, you're like, 
Absolutely, right? The inexorable force of reason is such that physics must come to know itself and the universe must have uh, you know, this property and that property. And I'm reading this, I'm like, absolutely right. And then I remember, like, actually, it turns out the matter density of the universe is not less than one, right? So something's gone wrong. And it is precisely one, unfortunately, as far as we can tell. As far and, as we can tell, though, was there, you know, what is dark matter? What is dark energy? Is it bullshit, right? Well, you know, hey, check my dissertation, right? These were great problems. David has a, a centrifugal intellect. You can learn a lot about the many worlds hypothesis or the many worlds theory. And you could also follow it as a, as a narrative, as a, almost like Olaf Stapleton, right? It's an update of, of Star Maker, uh, where Deutsch goes on a journey uh, that takes him, in the end, to an account of human nature that suggests that one day we will manipulate, indeed, the very fabric of reality. So, you know, maybe, what, 10,000 years? If we don't hit one of those great filters. Yeah, great filters. Well, thank you, Simon. Yeah, this has fun. been unbelievably <laughs> interesting. I thought great. it would be, and yeah, it was. This, this was very, very good. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. <laughs>